I'm ready to start calling my shots more. And I always thought that I was, I remember saying like, I've always helped other people with their ideas. I wonder if I'll ever do mine. And in some weird way, that's what this fund is because my idea is not to run a company in the medical space or the material science space. My idea is to fundamentally straighten out this crooked relationship between people that sit on opposite sides of a table in an early stage company, right? Primarily investors and founders. So that's the line I'm trying to straighten. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today, contradicting my prior sentence in its entirety, (laughs) we are going to do something a little bit different and hear from an entrepreneur outside of our proximate region who I believe warrants this deviation from our norm and from whom there is a lot to learn. Today, I had the true pleasure of speaking with Jack Greco, the co-founder and former CFO and COO of ACV Auctions, a Buffalo-based wholesale online marketplace for cars, which went public in 2021 and is currently valued at approximately $3 billion. Now an active angel and venture investor through his fund, Far Out Ventures, Jack runs a weekly newsletter called Buffalo Bridge, which tells the stories of Buffalo startup community and has made nearly 200 investments in other founders and startups. I'll just say this was an awesome conversation that I think will resonate broadly. Outside of the Cleveland-Buffalo parallels, Jack is unfettered and candid on his reflections building ACV auctions, his passion for investing and for founders, and the work he is excited about next. So please enjoy my conversation with Jack Greco after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. So I, I do have to, to confess, uh, I, I have a, a kind of business crush, I'll, I'll call it, on, on ACV auctions. And I, I thought a lot about you know, what you guys were able to achieve as, as a business because I found a lot of inspirational parallels in your story. And so if you'll indulge some fanboyism for, for a moment. Totally, I th- man. I, <laughs> I, I thought it's like pretty easy to loud ACV on just growth alone. Like when you think about how long it took some of the most prominent companies of the last decade to hit $100 million run rate of revenue, you know, Shopify, Twilio, HubSpot, you're talking, you know, five, six, seven years. And ACV gets to 100 million, I think, in about like three years. 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's all about slopes and plateaus, right? And it's may your slopes be up and your plateaus be short. I, like ACV did start in a plateau in the beginning. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Like we we incorporated the company and had been working on tech for a while. But like when we launched, like we had revenue day one. And also remember we're a marketplace, right? So, you know, with any marketplace, you know, and I, I do mostly, I, I really enjoy investing in marketplaces. It's not mostly what I do. It's not the only thing I do. It's what I'm known for and I enjoy it and I understand it. But you know, I always tell people like, you know, it, it's always tough comparing marketplace businesses to SaaS business because like, is it obviously GMV doesn't equate to SaaS revenue, but like net revenue is also a little bit like a kick in the pants. Like, you know, like, Hey, why are we like, you know, I'm sure there's a bunch of things associated with this, you know, but like, why are we taking such a dip? Because like ACV was only clipping like 3%, you know, like right, a right. net take rate. But I'll tell you when we started growing from like when we took money from Bessemer, which is when things really started shooting up, it was pretty quick. It really was. Yeah. And look, I mean, it was, it was a massive market. It was a pretty simple product. I mean, we weren't doing anything, you know, revolutionary, right? We were like, hey, are you sick of not having like not having to go somewhere to buy cars and not having all the information up front? Like, all right, we fixed those two problems. And honestly, <laughs> it was it was the information up front. Like, we went out and inspected the cars and told everybody what they were. So instead of 100 people looking at one car, making their own assessment, we sent one person out that did probably 10 times the work and, and showed it to all 100 people. Actually, because it was so easy, maybe 200 or 300 or 500 would look at it. So, like, right. you know, it was simple. So... Well, and that's the the other front where I I really admire ACV and what you guys did at a deeper level because in my own entrepreneurial journey, there's been kind of two fronts that that I think are 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 related here, and one has been building trust in classically underserved markets that are ripe for disruption as a consequence of their you know fragmented, opaque, inefficient, antiquated. I, the, I could the list of adjectives goes on, but like often paper based old school infrastructure and like somewhat misaligned stakeholders, and they suffer deeply from this lack of trust. And for me, th- those worlds have been healthcare and government. But the other piece of it being that you know this was a company built in Buffalo, uh, you know, not in a city of startup gravity like San Francisco, New York City, and right. I think akin to Cleveland in a lot of those ways. And so those. I think we're we're both quite inspirational for 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 me as an observer. But so think of it like this, right? ACV had to be born in a place like Buffalo. Now I, I've been part of the founding of a couple other things. One was a marketplace called the Lumber Exchange, which think of a lot of the same aspects of ACV, but for hardwood lumber. And I was an early, I was the first investor and really involved in a company up in Toronto called Octo, which was auctioning off capital equipment. Think of like metal shredding machines and robotic arms and like stuff that you would use to manufacture. And like what's common across all these things, right? Like the things are big, the things take up space, a car, a crate of lumber, manufacturing line, like that's not stuff you find that's not resident and ambient in places like San Francisco and New York. Like it's just not, it's just not there. 
you know, it's funny, like even today, if you look at ACV's, you know, Manifest Destiny, their covering of the continental United States, there's like noticeable naval holes around, especially Manhattan, right? Because guess what? No one buys a car in Manhattan. And if you do, it's some kind of super transformer robot car that's never going to be on <laughs> ACV anyways, right? Right. So like it had to come from here. And I actually think one of the reasons, like cool things about, you know, the I don't have four sports teams in my city cities, which is what I like to think of them as, right? You're a three, we're a two, is, you know, there is enough space to be able to get early adoption. And you're also able to like activate a market and kind of go under the radar a little bit. So like structurally, like, yeah, we're, we're working with cars. So we happen to all start this in Buffalo, which was a beautiful test market, right? 1.2 million people in the greater Buffalo area, reasonable income, you know, kind of traditional classic Americans where like life hasn't changed a ton. So you kind of know what you're dealing with. And we're working with really big products, right? I mean, like, you know, had we done this in a place like New York, where like all of a sudden we have issues with like transporting this stuff because we're moving it through bridges, you know, bridges and tunnels and across straight lines and stuff, or in a place where we just couldn't get to people. Like, I think these are the advantages of doing something in what I call unapologetically and proudly tier two ecosystems, right? Like I'm proud to be, I'm proud that Buffalo is a tier two ecosystem. I don't want it to be New York. I don't want it to be San Francisco. I'm not interested in being Boston or Miami or Dallas. Like I don't want to be any of those. You know, I'm happy it's a place where you're, you know, people describe Buffalo as one big living room. And like, you're always a couple degrees of separation in a place that's we're known as the city of good neighbors, right? Like, one one or two degrees of separation from being able to get something up and started. I, it's one of the reasons, like, I don't just, like, invest and work and live in Buffalo. ACV's public. I could live on anywhere on the planet Earth and possibly some, you know, low-orbiting <laughs> satellites and asteroids too, right? But I choose to live here because, you know, and I choose, I would even say I choose to invest here because it's more on the investment side. I live here because I have family here. I like to invest in these ecosystems because I think they create the best platforms for early launch, early detection, you know, fail quick or invest quick type stuff. And I think we were able to really hit product market fit. Like the reason ACB grew so fast is we raised 400 and something million bucks. I mean, like, I don't care how small the engine is. When you dump gasoline in it, the car goes faster as long as the engine doesn't blow up. And I would say that we kind of were able to do that, not completely under the radar, but we were able to do that effectively and pretty efficiently. And we just happened to do it here. I mean, we were, it's not like we thought, Oh, this is where we're going to go in the country to do this. We all had family ties to Buffalo and that's why we did it here. Right. And just even hearing you talk about it there, there is this, I think, undeniable kindred shared ethos that, that Cleveland embodies as well. And I imagine a lot of these Midwestern cities, you know, even though Buffalo is in New York, it's, it's really, the, the Midwest. No, nah, look, I mean, like, there's, <laughs> like, let me put it this way Buffalo, I don't think, has swayed a state vote in about the last 80 years. Okay. Um, and we're technically the second biggest region in the state, right? There's like New York and Long Island. And then you could literally chip that off. And then upstate New York looks a lot more like Wisconsin than it does downstate, right? You know, or Ohio, or it, it's the same. Th- I mean, you guys are interesting because you have, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, 
I don't even know any other Canton, probably 12 other cities with the name start with C. Um, you're very, you know, a lot of alliteration there. Some marketing guy probably is the one that settled it, you know? And so there is like, you do have some breakup there, right? Like, you know, I was born just outside Rochester. I was born between Rochester and Syracuse. I live in Buffalo, Albany's, thank God they got the capital or they want to be a city, you know, no, no diss on anybody from Albany, but you know, it's like, we have these like norm, like cities that all kind of look like each other. And then we have New York, which is just totally different. So it is a little different than you, but we are, I mean, we feel it like in addition to like, we don't get any respect because we're a small city. We also don't get any respect because we're literally in the state with the most powerful city in the United States. Right. Like it's just, we're constantly like the nephew that you see in the family photo, but like you forget was there like, Oh, Buffalo was there too. Right. Like whatever there's that affords you some opportunity is probably a good way to put it. Yeah. Did, did you always know, you know, growing up in, in Rochester and in upstate New York or around Buffalo that you wanted to build stuff? Yeah. I mean, so my father was an antique dealer, which I knew I wanted to run a business because I saw what he did. And he liked to take things apart. He was an antique dealer, right? Like when they were, he would buy and I would go with him, right? Because typical son, you know, oldest son of an entrepreneur, like two thirds of the time I spent with my dad, he was working. And so you pick up the trade, probably like my son is with me now. If we were doing this call a couple hours later, you'd see him drawing and probably chirping and stuff in the background too, because I bring him the stuff. But my father found a way to make money putting things, you know, things that were being taken out of some place, putting them in something else, some other place where somebody valued it. So in some ways, there was like a disassembly aspect to what he did. And like any oldest son with Catholic guilt, you want to make sure you right the wrongs of your ancestors. And I'm like, well, maybe I should, maybe I'm meant to like put things back together. Right. So reassembly, construction, building, you know when everybody wanted to be something as a kid, I wanted to be an architect. And when I realized they weren't putting up, you know, castles anymore, I kind of lost interest in that. But I always liked building. I did. But the thing is, I like people. And you could even see it like I invest in companies that don't shy away from being labor intensive. Now, labor intensive, albeit as long as they can still show proper unit economics and, you know, contribution margin, right? I'm going to, I'm an economist and a financier first, but I like people. And the cool thing, like when you're an adult, like you don't have, you know, kindergarten class to show up and be with a bunch of people and do stuff all day. And I was like, well, the cool thing about businesses are that they're assemblies of people all learning, all growing, albeit they have more of a common interest than you did when you were in school. And I think I just like the social aspect to it, which obviously during COVID made things super weird because all of a sudden I was like left to my own means and almost demise just being cooped up in my house by myself. But <laughs> I knew I always wanted to be around people and like help, you know, I, I just liked helping people with what they were doing. And that's kind of, you know, a lot of people helped me and my co-founders with ACV. And since then I'm like, all right, I got a lot of repaying to do. And that's kind of what I've been up to. Mm. Well, I do want to just ask, you know, point blank, going back to the, the concept of building trust uh, in, in a digital context, you know, especially in a space where I think wholesale used car buyers may even pride themselves to a certain degree on their ability to assess a car's value by like physically seeing it. And, you know, classically, you know, this market where 
buyers face all the financial risk. You have the the classic econ one hundred and one lemon examples, and, yep. and sellers don't get the best price that they could. And so you built this this efficient market where all the buyers and sellers can transact in a much broader market, all without physically, you know, dealing with the the auction space. You know, how is it that you actually do that? How, how do you build trust in in that kind of way? All right. So look, I mean, if anybody listening listening to this closes their eyes and thinks use cardio, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Like name an animal. <laughs> it's going to be like a rat or like a cockroach or something like a like a slug or a you know, snake or something, right? Like so there's an inherent distrust. I have never bought a car from a used car dealer. Like I never have. And I could have told you the day we started ACV, I'm like, you can't trust them, right? You know, they're squirrely, right? Um, they're out to get you. So we said, okay. And look, one of my co-founders was a used car dealer. And Joe's a good guy, <laughs> but he'll laugh. I mean, I would say this right in front of him. And like, it would be moments after he said, you know, he was, you know, started a car dealership basically when he was 16. But so the way you do that is you look at it from a different outside perspective, right? You decouple the situation. Dealers don't trust other dealers, right? Just to be clear, ACV is a B2B marketplace. So as much as me with my retail mindset, think about this stuff, ACV didn't affect that. So you got to unhinge it, right? You have to break it and you have to say, okay, you guys have been, you know, working together as a, you know, um, a necessary evil for a while. We're going to step in. And I think that, you know, the management as an in-between, you know, party is kind of what you need. I, so I, I can tell you, we used to tell people, you tell people all they got to do is trust us. You just have to trust ACV. You got to trust that like, if something's wrong, we will make it right. Yes. If you buy a car and it's supposed to be red and it shows up yellow, we'll make sure that at worst comes to worst, the things that get unwound, right? If that means we as ACV get stuck with a yellow car, shame on us. But we're going to put all of our investment in lowering our risk. But we've told you on day one, we're going to make this okay. So, and we meant that, right? I mean, we spent almost no money on digital marketing, but we had a massive marketing budget because our marketing budget was basically making things good for our customers. So, I mean, we were in the business of allowing people. So for, for people that wanted to sell cars, we made it really easy. You don't have to worry about getting paid. You know, we send somebody out there. You don't even need to diagnose or dissect or explain the condition on this thing. We'll send somebody out. You just have to know how to call us. That's it. And then eventually how you just let us in. And then they would trust those people. And on the buyer side, you just need to know that what we're saying is what you're buying. And for some reason you don't get that, we'll take care of it. So we've unhinged it. It's not a relationship between buyer and seller anymore. And when we had seen, I mean, we as a kid, I snuck into plenty of auctions. And then as an adult with ACV, I snuck into plenty of auctions. You could see the distrust. So, I mean, you know, to anybody out there trying to think about what they want to do, just find a place where two people really don't trust each other. And then force your way in by being an intermediary without calling yourself an intermediary, right? Like an auction inherently supplies a buyer buying something from a seller. So you're under the guise that you know, Jeff, you go to an auction and you're going to buy you know, you're going to buy something from one of the sellers out there. But when the auctioneer steps in between, what you understand one one degree off, one derivative off, is that you really have a relationship with us. So if that's the case and we never screw up, 
then you're going to trust us. And it takes time to earn that, but the lifetime value on it's big enough. You know, I mean, if the average dealership is doing 35 or 40 used cars a month, you know, wholesaling cars a month, and, you know, the average dealership's buying, you know, used car dealerships buying 8, 10, 12, 15, 20. Now, this is on average, right? You have your right, CarMaxes right. and your Carvanas, but like the business is built to little people. You know, there's a lot of lifetime value there at, you know, whatever ACVs, what, whatever their average revenue per unit is right now, 400 bucks. You know, you multiply 400 bucks times 40 per month times 12 months, there's a lot of LTV there. We can make a lot of things good and still make money. So I think that's kind of the approach that we took on it. Right. And then in, in parallel, to, to use your you know words of, of labor intensiveness, there's this like classic startup Paul Grahamism of doing things that don't scale. But I, I think there's like literally something to that, how, you know, wh- when you think about the go-to-market and, and what you guys actually proved out in Buffalo in like a regional local sense that you were able to then, you know, pour fuel into the into the engine and, and take it to scale with with Bessemer and, and subsequent rounds of investment. Like what what was that early doing things that don't scale, labor intensive, building of the inspector network to to actually like build the the moat, if you will, for, for ECV? Well, I'll tell you what, three co-founders in the company that held the titles of at some point CEO, CSO, excuse me, CEO, Chief Sales Officer, Chief Financial Officer, COO, and CTO all took customer service calls. I mean, like, we like if you want to talk about what didn't scale, the inspector part of it, if it didn't scale, I don't know what ACV is doing because we're doing the exact same thing we did when we when we hired our first inspector. Joe's probably still mad that, you know, we got in a fight and I, I told him he's got to go out and, like, be the first inspector the first day. He was. I think he did it for one day, you know, and he probably will laugh about it if he hears this. But, you know... I would actually make the argument ACV is a business built on things that you typically would not think scaled, but we're a publicly traded company worth a couple billion dollars. So, I mean, maybe they, they scaled, did. right? I mean, like <laughs> there's no way to get somebody to drive from one dealership to another one faster. Like I didn't like we did, we didn't invest in a black like a wormhole or black hole company that like jumps you around. And honestly, if anything, the inspections take longer. And yeah, there's some automation inside process. I think in the beginning, it's a lot of talking. I almost think that there's, we probably, and again, I haven't been at ACV for a handful of years now, but I can tell you when we left, the company was scaling and ramping and growing well. And we were treating every customer, every user when they came on the platform, whether they were new or whether they were coming back and they had been off a little bit, like it was brand new for them. And we probably don't do scalable things with every single customer. So as opposed to the company, you know, this isn't like the Airbnb guys taking photos until people got good at it. It'd right. be like if Airbnb came in and said, all right, your first 10, your first 10 listings, we're going to come and take the photos and like hand walk people in. I mean, I actually think it's not scalable in the beginning every single time. And then the question is, how quickly can you get the training wheels off on these? But I mean, the truth is, ACV is not incredibly different. The by and large core of it, I'm looking at it as an outsider now. Okay. Doesn't look any different than it did when I left or the day we started it. I mean, it's still primarily 20 minute auctions where we do the best job possible telling you what the car is and you bid on it and you slap a button and you pray to God you win. Knowing that that premise has remained somewhat uniform since inception through today, how do you think about the, the, 
the biggest challenges of, of each life cycle of the business, right? Because obviously the company is at a very different place where it was when, when you guys started it uh, on, on every front imaginable. But as you went through the, you know, the startup scale up, de-risking exercise of, you know, figuring out product market fit, working through the sales motion, building the right team, addressing competitive concerns, like what, what were the existential fears at each stage and, and how did you guys navigate them? The first fear was we were never going to get the product built. Like it was originally, I got to ask Dan what the original promise was, but it was like, I want to say it was Labor Day or Halloween of 2014. And then it kept getting bumped and bumped and bumped. I mean, we didn't, we launched our first car June 1st of 2015. Okay. So it was like, all right, are we going to be able to get this together? Is it going to work? Right. There was technical risk. At the same time, we're like, are people going to come to this? Because we didn't do any, like, I, I will say we talked a lot about this, but June 1st was still a cold start. I mean, you know, we had not turned the engine over before. So it'd be like the first time you're running a car, you just taking off on a road trip, right? Like that's kind of the way we function. So, I mean, that was terrifying in the beginning, right? And then I remember we had four straight months of growth. We sold like 53 cars, 100 and something cars, 150 something cars, and 197 cars. And we're like, this thing cooks, right? In, in four months, we were selling 200 cars a month. I mean, that was just, that was great. I mean, I, I look at a lot of companies in the automotive space. It takes them a year or two to get to it. And we've already broken ice on it. And this was all in Buffalo. This was in little Buffalo, right? And then all of a sudden the sales flattened out and we realized there was seasonality to this stuff. And we were like, oh my God, are they going to come back? And then we were burning cash faster than we needed to because we didn't really, like we knew we had an account for working capital, but like we were trying to be so kind to our customers. We were like, all right, pay us when you can on this, right? Like you don't get the title, but if it takes, because we, we weren't integrated with, financing and floor plan systems yeah and then, then you know i'm like like there was a couple the first three times we raised money we were like we're almost out of money right <laughs> what i would call our pre-seed our seed and our a round and a round really when bessemer came in we almost were out of money then those fears dissipated and then you know we brought in george as the ceo between the seed and the a and you know our fears turned to I mean, all of a sudden, I, I'll say like, you know, I think we had different ideas for where the business should go. Hmm. You know, do you go deep or do you go wide? Do we like how fast do we open stuff up? You know, are we able to talent or raise correctly? Uh, excuse me, hire correctly. But the thing did have a snowball effect. And I mean, it was rolling. I can't remember months outside of maybe a couple December's where we weren't growing every single month. And December is a notoriously slow month in wholesale because everybody, you know, people will take their losses in December, but they won't take their gains because they, for tax reasons. And now all of a sudden things pick back up in January. So, you know, there were a lot of stops and starts in terms of our fears, right? You know, like all of a sudden we'd be worried about, oh my God, can we find talent? That was like, oh, are we, are we too heavy? You know, and none of us had done that before. Like George had founded a company that grew, Cinecore, that ultimately went public, but he wasn't at hel the helm when it, that happened. And he'd always been more on the sales side than anything else. Dan, Joe, and I collectively had the equivalent of small business experience. You know, I've been in venture. I was the one with the most venture experience, but like it was primarily in biotech and material science, right? Like these were companies that took four rounds of funding before they had a dollar in revenue. 
you know, Dan ran an incubator and Joe ran a used car center. So, I mean, I think we were just all very hungry and driven and we did a great job with our first 20 hires and those 20 hires, when they started hiring, did a good job with theirs, you know, and uh, honestly showing up at work with good people being like, this is hard as hell. I will tell you, there are people of our first 20, 30 employees that should be multimillionaires. Like we should have gave them way more equity just based on the amount of value that they added that we didn't. But, you know, like initially it was us figuring out how we were doing it. We brought in a very involved board. You know, I think that's um, easy to see. You see how quickly we were raising rounds, the amount of continual board participation. You know, it's all public now. And then I can tell you for me, like before I left, I was getting to the point where I was like, all right, this is diverging from what I want to do. And also the work-life balance sucked. I mean, I was head of strategy, finance, and operations. And we were a Series C company. And that was stupid. It was stupid on me for pretending I was Hercules. And it was stupid because (laughs) by the time I did ask for help, the company didn't know how to recruit top-end talent. Like we got... We got really, I mean, George was an early investor. We got lucky there and we got really lucky with our chief sales officer. But like, that was it, you know, it was, you know, George Waterman, me, Dan, Joe, you know, so I, I, I stepped back and I was terrified when I stepped back. I stepped back being like, I don't know if they're going to actually bring in better talent. And maybe it's because I exist because I was, you know, I think it's fair to say such a keystone in so many operations, right? I did not do a good job of making myself redundant. And then I just parachuted out. And I think they did a good job. It took a while. They brought in a good strategy guy. Then they brought in a good operations guy. Then finally, as they were getting ready to go public, they brought in a good finance guy at the top. I mean, there was a ton of really good VP and director level down participants. But, you know, you need a you need a chief for every tribe. But it went well. Like, it ended up being the right thing to happen. But that's, you know, so, so you have this, like, you get this agita, both about, like, the company then about your employees, then finally at the end about yourself. And it makes it hard because you're dealing with all that at once. And life marches on, right? I had a, I had a, my, my, my son was born two months after we sold our first car, which means he was in the womb before we sold the car, which means for seven months there was a baby and there was no revenue. So you can imagine what the hell that was like in the beginning. Just kind of (laughs) crazy. Yeah. Well, so when you think about stepping away, at this point in retrospect, you know, you can, I think, say by most measures of, of entrepreneurship and success, you've achieved them. And, and we can unpack that. But, you know, you can go live on your proverbial low orbiting asteroid. But obviously, that isn't <laughs> the, the end of your journey and interests and pursuits and, and like, you know, <laughs> journey to be had in life. So I'd really love to understand how in your exodus uh, afforded the time to really think deeply and reflect about what it is that you wanted to do next. You know, thinking about these higher level concepts of your, your opus and your, your life's work, how do you figure out what it is you actually want to spend your time on going forward, given this incredible experience that you had? So in the beginning, and I'm a man of analogy, in the beginning, I thought of myself riding a bicycle. I had to be moving or I was going to fall down. And so I just moved. Right. Like I was just moving and shaking. Right. I got out of ACV within, I think I took three weeks and a company asked me to help them. And I have a little bit of experience in agriculture in the dairy space. And it was a deep tech product, machine learning enabled sensor in the dairy space. I was helping them in like three weeks. 
I was just like, you know, I basically had the month of August off. My son's birthday's in August. My mom's birthday's in August. And by September, I was like, all right, I'm doing this. I did. And that was I, I, the reason I say riding the bicycle. Like when you ride a bicycle, you got to ride like you ride a bicycle, but you can look around at stuff that's going on. Right. And that's kind of what I was doing. I had to be moving in order to focus, just like anybody with, you know, ADHD, like I might have to fiddle with something while I'm talking to you to actually focus on talking to you. So yeah. I have to be doing something in a business to actually be thinking what I want to do. So I got really fortunate. There was like a Skunk Works product, project that ran through the state where Techstars was trying to do ecosystem development. So I kind of helped the dairy company for six months. I did the eco development for about a year and a half. And it really, I'm so happy for that opportunity. I mean, I hated working for a big organization. I, <laughs> I've gotten fired from every single thing I've ever done, including ACV. That happened early on and I was brought back. It was more a, I'm having a, I'm having a conniption fit and uh, I need like to actually take my paternity leave is what it ended up being. Because I took two days, which is not smart, right? And I ended up taking four weeks, five weeks. But I didn't like the big company part of it, but I really like the opportunity to be like, all right, I have a bubble and that bubble has pushed out me from doing 50,000 other things. And inside that bubble, I'm actually allowed to just think about the community, the startup ecosystem, startup community in upstate New York. That's when I really said, all right, I like helping people. I like, I want to have an impact. I like startups. I've been doing a ton of angel investing, right? Like I basically angel invested to figure out what I liked had done over a hundred angel deals, direct deals. I was an LP and at this point, I think I'm an LP in like 65 funds or something like that. But I was like, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to move some money around. I got too much of it. Right. I took care of everybody in my family, took care of everybody. I was like, everybody's happy. If I give them more, they'll be stupid. I didn't want anything <laughs> for me. I was like, I'm, I'm in my late thirties. I don't, uh, I just don't want anything right now because I don't want to slow down. I don't want to stop riding the bike. You know, m my dad always says this thing when people retire, they die real quick because like they stop, they stop doing stuff. And he's like, that's why I hope I don't ever retire. And I feel the same way. Like, I don't want to retire. Right. Like I don't care. I don't golf. I'm a horrible golfer. I'm horrible at most sports. I was decent in lacrosse and decent at skiing and I'm okay at a couple other things. And I'm now playing on two reconstructed Achilles after I've blown a ball. So some of those sports kind of go away, but it really, it took me about, it took me a couple of years. And I still really don't know. I just know what I want to do right now. I know I'm engaged, get married next year. I want to focus on that, that my family. I always hate when people stack rank things and they say, this comes first and this comes second. They're all important. That is the most important thing to me. And then what comes right after that is having a positive impact in the areas I want to. So I knew I didn't want my epitaph to read Jack Greco, co-founder of the way used car guys bought cars better. Like I didn't give a shit about that, you know, but that's what the tabloids say. They don't say ACV is a, a, a marketplace for people and relationships, which is what it really is. It's in whatever we're, we're shucking, which is cars. So like my whole thesis on everything is I was like, you know, I want to invest in founders that are making a positive impact and where this is their this is what sets them up, right? Like I always tell founders, founders get done with a fundraise and I go, are you exhausted? And they're like, yeah, I'm like, great. That wasn't even the beginning. And I think of ACV was the same way for me. It was my way. I got the funding I needed to run the startup, which is my life. And now I just can't F it up, right? Because it was a really hard slog. I mean, you know, it was from 2014 till the end of 2018 
there was a lot of days, a lot of months. That's a long fundraising cycle. If you told me it took four plus years to raise, you know, your round for your startup, I'd be like, dude, got to really rethink <laughs> your startup. But that's the startup of my life, right? And now I'm to the right. point. I'm like, all right, what am I doing? And I think I'm starting to finally get there, right? I I run a venture fund right now, you know. So instead of me just being Wild Bill, the you know the angel investor slinging you know riverboat gambling guy, which is kind of the persona I had that whole time. Now I got to be responsible. You got to be judicious, and I have partners, and it it's it's a different world. And I don't love it. Like I don't love rules, but I think it's important to follow them. Like you know, I want to when I want to get to A to B, I want to drive as fast as I can. But if everybody does, we'll all die. So I'm okay with some rules, and that's kind of the world I live in right now. Hmm. Yeah, well, it comes back to that that opus idea, the the life's work. I mean, I, I think you often hear retirement talked about as normally that explicit marker of the the end of work or employment. And and I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard it framed as the day when you actually stop sacrificing today for tomorrow, and so you can just kind of pursue the things you would have pushed off in, in employment anyway. Yeah. I don't have a dictionary in front of me, but I believe the word to retire means to remove or take out of service. Okay. Mm. And I'm not ready to stop serving. Right. It's that simple. So, and I, I love serving, right? Like, you know, founders ask me sometimes, and they've done this as part of far out the fund that I, I am the manager partner of and, you know, with two other guys and as well as an angel, and they're like, you're more excited about this than I am. Like you, like you, you think that, that you're selling me and I thought I was selling you. And I was like, well, that's good. I said, that's a good relationship, right? Like you want you and your wife to both want the other person. You want to both feel like the lucky one. And I feel lucky to have the opportunity to support these founders. Right. I do. And I'm not saying I'll never found something again. I totally will. But where I am right now, this gives me an opportunity to be on the other side of the table and do it all the ways that I never had anybody help me and take care of me on. So it's a yeah. little bit of like chip on my shoulder, um, but it's a good chip. And I got strong shoulders, so it's okay. <laughs> I like that a lot. Well, I've, I've heard you talk before about how you want to identify and, and elevate these bigger ideas coming out of smaller places was, was I think, the phrase. And so I'm curious how you actually go about operationalizing that and getting people to raise the bar for ambition and even think about what can even be accomplished in the first place. I remember uh, reading a, a book recently that, that talked about Barry Diller, who runs uh, IAC, a multi-billion dollar media and internet company. And, and the essence of the story was that someone in Diller's world came to him and told him about this opportunity and said that, you know, if we really do it right, we'll have $100 million in revenue in this kind of timeline. And if we really do it right, we'll have $100 million in profit. And Diller, you know, looks back at him and is like, why bother? Like, why would we even work on something so small? And so I thought that was just kind of a funny story. But, you know, like, what does it mean to go big in your mind when we think about the, the scope of ambition? Well, so here's what I noticed, right? Stealing from, what's his name, Gordon Gecko or whatever, like, greed is good. I see a ton of it in the world, right? I think that that's great that there's people that want to grow things incredibly huge. ACV is, just to be clear, as of today, not a company that makes $100 million in profit. It actually does not make any profit still. So we are still continuing to peddle the hopes and dreams of a better tomorrow and a multiple on an EBITDA that doesn't exist, okay? So just to be factual. But 
the way I look at it is this, is I think it is easy to be a late stage investor. And I want all the late stage investors that can turn off this podcast if there's anyone <laughs> listening to it. But I think it's easy. I think it becomes a numbers game and it's not a people's game at that point because there's too much diversification of people. I mean, if you think any of these CEOs at any of these big companies like have that much influence over the overall health and well-being of their people, they have the power and in very few cases is it used appropriately or efficiently or at all in order to do anything about that. And so I am not an expert at manipulating a financial statement and creating, you know, categorical growth vectors off of following some type of marketing plan and thesis. I, I actually am not operationalized at all. I'm not, I'm no more operationalized than a thunderstorm that comes together out of the blue, right? Somehow there's natural effects that create that and then it goes away and they come up all the time. But I don't think a thunderstorm actually ever thinks it's going to shoot a bolt of lightning down, right? So I am in the business of people and I am in the business of taking the bets on people early on and identifying human beings and also in identifying market opportunities. I believe in building. I also know that there is this positive vacuum. Once you get to a particular size, it's probably around the series A or the series B mark where the, the company is going to be what it is and it's going to get sucked up if it deserves to get sucked up, right? So I really exist as this one who's, all right, like, you know, yes, I understand like the markup on jewelry at a jewelry store is like 90%. And I don't mind being the one digging up gold, making almost no money digging it up because you could put it inside of a system. And we're seeing this with a fund where you actually can make these wildly profitable and you can give people the opportunity to do what I think is easier, which is do later stage follow on investing. So the truth is, I actually think it's like I I personally have to have the same level of conviction in every single bet that I make. I can't define that as a 9 out of 10 or this high up on the meter, but I have to be willing to if, – if the opportunity was presented itself, if I was going to make a clone of myself, the clone of me would go work for and run and support that startup. Like That is my threshold to make a, an investment out of our fund or historically a large angel bet, right? So – what it turns into, who in the hell knows? I mean, I can tell you, ACV, the smartest thing we did was raise a ton of money. It was. I mean, it was higher. I will say this. One, it was higher happy, the, the right happy people that knew what they were doing. Two, we empowered them. Three, we got really lucky with the size of the market. And four, we raised a ton of money. And like the first two, I mean, we did intentionally. And the other two, we knew they were big, but it's not like Dan Joe and I sat around and said, wow, the TAM's huge on this. It was, this is a problem. So it's tricky, right? Like I don't necessarily, like, don't get me wrong. I will happily take a company that could do a hundred, hundred million dollars in profit. I'll happily take a company that could do a hundred million in revenue or even in today, 40 or 50 million in actual net revenue is like a real business. Cause you got to remember, I'm also be getting in on, day one. I'm one of three guys that run a pre-seed and seed fund. Pre-seed to me means I got an idea. I got some early traction. Maybe I got a little bit of coin coming in from it. Maybe I don't, but I got a plan and I got a team and I have a way to talk about executing on it. And then seeds, like 
all right, we got some money coming in. You know, I do more of our seed deals. So I do like investing in stuff with early traction, but because I want to be able to talk to a customer, I want to be able to see the dynamics of the sale, right? I'm a sales guy to begin with too. I mean, my father had me selling furniture way too young of an age, you know, and you just kind of get that built into your, in your repertoire. If the product, I mean, a business that has no revenue has no value, right? For 98% of them that are not working on a cure for some type of cancer or, some type of AI that's going to take over the world, right? But the majority of businesses, if there's no revenue, there's no value. So I don't look at it like it needs to be the biggest thing in the world. I think everybody's looking for the biggest thing in the world. I think the biggest things in the world come out of things that are really good that all of a sudden catch a nice updraft and they did the right hire and it was the right timing and a bunch of things humans can't predict and it shoots up. And so I like to take I like to put as many – think of a ping pong ball. I like to throw as many ping pong balls in the air I can. And if the wind catches it the right way, shit, it's Uber. But I did not think a service on your phone to get black cars to like drive you around, luxury black luxury cars to drive you around, was something that would be as big as it was, right? Like, okay, yeah, like if somebody looked at like Microsoft in the beginning, okay, it makes more sense. But I think that it's as much luck as it is – you know, they, it's not luck building a great company. It is luck getting a great company to turn into Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed yeah. to the seven people that that don't do that. So, so to that, and also your framing of if later stage is more of a numbers game, and the earlier stages where you're spending more of your time thinking right now is more of a, a people's game. What traits or characteristics make for the the best founders, right? You know, at this point, you've made hundreds of of angel investments, which yep. is a lot. Meaning yep. you've you've spoken with how many additional founders that you've actually met with, let alone made actual investments in. So it's a substantial sample size. Yep. You know, you had mentioned your own chip on your own soldier. Are are there characteristics like that of those who have risen and been successful, or is it less tangible than that? How yep. how much to your point of luck is involved? Yeah. Tenacious, organized, trustworthy, humble, hungry, pleasant maybe the honest, like, like trustworthy and that you can trust them, but also honest in the sense of the between state between trustworthiness and humility, which is like honest with reality. Like those are the traits I would, that just come to mind initially that I need to see and feel in order to do anything. Like I need to know that I can trust you. You know, I know what it's like to have an infant in my hand. I have one. I had one. He is much bigger now. You know, I need to know I can trust you holding that. I need to know the way you make decisions. Like, I don't need to know all of them. I don't need to micromanage you. It's like, if we're going into a situation, I need to know that I know the way you make decisions and I'm cool with that, right? We need to vibe because I'm also going to put, I mean, I, I don't support the angel investments that I did before to any real degree now. I had to kind of sunset all of that. There's a handful of them that I kind of got grandfathered in, but by and large, the majority of those are on their own. But for the first year or two, we got to work together. I mean, I talked to the founders who are all the CEOs of the companies I've led in far out. I talked to every single one of them at least once a week. There's some of them I talk to five, six, seven. If there's busy stuff, I might talk to them 25 times a week, right? I need to know, like, you're a good partner. Like, I, I, the same traits I would look at in a partner I got to look at it in a CEO because that's really what you end up being in the beginning. And that's on the person. I mean, I want to understand the market. I want to understand the vision. I want to understand you felt it. 
You know, I tend to invest in founders that have been in the industry they're in for at least 10 years, at least 10 years, right? I'm investing in some young founders. So, but that doesn't mean you can't be in it. It means you have to be adjacent to it, right? Or close to it. But I like people that have felt the pain and know how to fix it. And my job is just to be able to help you scale your vision, tweak it along the way. But by and large, I don't expect you to really be changing too much. You might have to because of circumstantial things. But I'm not like, oh, they're smart. They'll figure it out. No, you're smart. And you should have at least feel like you figured it out already by the time I get involved. And we might have to figure it out again. But it's great that you have adaptability and you're, you know, athletically minded that you are limber and you can stretch and you can like move through different aspects of the business really well. But I mean, honestly, and not that everybody I invest in is my friend, but I come to fall in love with these founders. It's a personality trait I have where I take more pride in if I work with you, you being successful means more to me than me ever being successful. And I want to make sure there are people that I will root for indefinitely. And that's not true of everybody, you know, like there are founders where I'm like, you're probably gonna make a ton of money, but I got to give you to somebody else because I can't support you for forever. There's something in the way you do something or, you know, ethics or morals or something that we just don't vibe. And if I don't jive with you, I don't jive with you. What's maybe your most memorable pitch or initial meeting with an entrepreneur where you thought, you know, this is something that I cannot wait to invest in. You know, what was the most memorable first impression or an impression? I'm sure there's a ton that you love, but if any come to mind. Yeah. Some of the best first pitches I've seen are some of my quickest flops. You know, um, I invested in a company out of Albany. My, my, my partners tease me about it, but it was a young founder, super energetic. Uh, I'm not going to name the company because that's going to crap on him, but you know, I, I saw it. And I was like, I love it. I didn't know a lot about it. One. Mm. So that's the problem. Loving something you don't know a ton about. And this was an angel bet. So like, you know, I could do whatever. And I didn't go in super heavy on it. Uh, initially, I did not. But I heard the pitch. I believed it. I trusted the guy. I liked how far ahead he was and the team he had put around him and he was advanced. And I bought in on it. You know, it was a marketplace play. And it just it just went to crap. I think there were some overlooked aspects of the business. And again, if if I had made that bet through our fund, I would have been a lot more involved. But I, that was in the era of good times when I was like, I'm throwing money everywhere. Like I'm helping these companies, but there was a lot of mouths to feed. I'll juxtapose that against the deal I'm doing right now at Far Out. The woman that's the founder, and I will say her name, Anne, runs a company called Inseam. The first two or three times I saw it, there was something in it that just, I kind of passed over it. And Anne stayed on me. She was, I don't know if she liked me or she just knew I had capital and she was doing it with everybody. I don't know. You'll have to interview her someday and ask her why. But then I was in New York and I was like, hey, I'm here. You know, I kind of felt a little bad. I was like, you're a founder in New York and I haven't given you that much time. And it did come in as a referral. And I sat down with her and I went from being like, whatever, I'll sit down with her. I walked away. I'm like, I'm investing in this company. I didn't get it before. She was, it was like, it was like, I was talking to somebody that had like, was using words and language. Like, like they were an adult and I was a kid and I wasn't getting what they were saying. You know, she was using word like influencer and connector and stuff like this. And I'm thinking like, this is a social media product. Right. And it wasn't, I think it's a very, I think it's going to be 
and I, it's one of the investments I'm the most excited about. It's going to be what I think transforms, if not all retail, at least luxury fashion in a B2B way, a B2B marketplace way, you know, kind of bringing in what was the beginning of a trend of using, you know, instead of using the words like connector and influencer, using words like a consultant, like a wardrobe consultant or a personal stylist, you know, to be able to help you make the purchasing and buying decisions you want to make, but really empowering them with a backend operating system. And so the first couple of times it didn't go great. You know, I was just like, all right, like, I don't really get it. And I showed it to a bunch of VCs and they said the exact same thing. And I said, it took me three or four times. And at this point, I'm like head over heels. I'm so excited to be, you know, we were the first commit in the round. And I'm really excited to help like pull this round together, which by the time this airs, hopefully it'll close. It'll be, you know, something between a million and a half and two million dollar round in a great founder and a great business. They had all the attributes I just said. But just I didn't get them even the it wasn't even just the first time, but the first two or three times. Mm. And now I'm a believer. Now I believe in the thing and she earned that. And that means a lot to me. What have been the most transferable or like earned learnings for yourself on the investing side of the, you know, ecosystem in, in a way that you maybe didn't appreciate as a as a builder? And now, you know, with the kind of again, uh operator investor title, if you will, right? What, 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 what do you, what's interesting about being in that role? When I, so I will tell you this, I did not understand when I was a founder, how important it was to align with peers, one, two, to understand the venture game. Cause I didn't get it. I did not understand, like I'd even worked for a venture firm for five years, but like I did not understand the software East coast venture game, the way valuations were struck, the way these deals were done. There are nuances in there. And I wish I had a mentor. I didn't have any mentors like that were, that had gone through it, you know? So, you know, I, I really downplayed and didn't even think about how important it would have been to be more thoughtful in understanding the game I was playing and not just the company I was building because venture is a game, hundred percent a game. And that's okay. It's a good game. It's an important, necessary game, but it's a game, you know? So I wish I understood that more. I mean, as an investor now, you know, in, in counseling with other investors, you, I, I would say founders have, don't really understand why people are betting on them. I don't see it being super clearly communicated. I don't see people saying, I'm doing this bet because the metrics are off the chart, even though I don't know a damn thing about this industry, which is honestly the reason some people do this. You know, or I am following a trend and you just happen to be the pitch that got in front of me and there was something in the color pink you used that made me open it and dig into it. And this is the horse I'm betting on. You know, like, I mean, I, I, I don't want to make it seem like venture investing is a casual thing, but we are humans, right? And I thought like, okay, you got to be the best. You got to be this, 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 right? I thought, it, I thought about being an athlete, like maxing out our combine rankings. When mm. I really realized you just, somebody catches a glimpse of your game tape and they might like you. And you don't know what's going to get these guys to like, and women to like you or not like you. You just don't know. Um, and I will say this, the venture game is tough. I mean, you don't realize that like the person investing in you runs a two-sided marketplace. They have to raise money and then they have to find you. And guess what? 
as the founder, you are on the weaker side of the two-sided marketplace because there are a billion founders and there are not a billion people that are going to give me money. And it makes it tough. And in the venture game, a lot of people have made it already. And I tell people, I go, look, I grew up in 2014, 15, 16 in a world in Buffalo where there wasn't a ton of capital. You had to take what you got. But it's important to really reevaluate who's on the other side of the table because like I'm not some like poor stowaway orphan that's just happy for like a family to take me. Like I get a decision in this as a founder. I want to know, are you hungry? Are you going to help me? Are you going to work? Or are you just going to be on my cap table? Or are you going to be a detriment? When things get hard, are you going to blame me? Or are you going to support me? Right? Like this is much more like picking your parent than it is like being so grateful that somebody just scoops you up. And it's hard because most companies don't get to pick that. And again, they don't get the game. They don't know when to start. They don't know how to start. You know, so it makes it tough. I mean, this is I, I could talk to you for three hours about the things I've learned just in the last, you know, really year and a half being a professional venture capitalist, right, which is what I am now. Even though if there was video on this call, I don't look very professional right now. My hair looks like it's going in 20 different directions. So. <laughs> Fortunately, no one has to see either of our faces. No, so. no, no. <laughs> well, I I could ask you about all that stuff uh, and what it is meant to take this professionally. I, I guess the, did it did it not feel, was it less of a, prof, like, did you not think about it professionally prior? Like prior, obviously, to the fund, but like at what point did it make sense for you to, to to think about it seriously? Well, I'll tell you what, when I started to, I mean, I invested every single penny that I ever made, that I ever made at ACV as of the beginning of January of 2022, all of it. So guess what? When you stick your hand in the jar and there's a pickle and there's another pickle and there's another pickle and there's no more pickles is when you start going, oh shit, I'm out of pickles, right? Like I wasn't even thinking about that. And look, I mean, I, I've had a bunch of, I think I've got five companies that failed seven or eight exits and a bunch that are alive just independently, which at this point I've taken a backseat on and obviously now we have a fund and stuff, but I knew I was going to be okay. I mean, I, I put about as much money into funds as I put into direct investing thinking if worse comes to worse, I'm going to learn. And these guys should at least give me one to two times my money back in eight to 10 years. So it was almost like parental supervision on my cash. But when I started getting down on cash, I was like, okay, I've cycled through this. What did I learn? I've learned standardize your check sizes, use a process, focus on things you're good at. Don't get into crazy stuff. Don't bet on like these, you know, a great pitch. Don't bet on a great pitch. Don't be afraid to bet on a bad pitch. You know, like all this, like if like if all the grandfatherly spirits out there just sat around me, it'd be the crap I would have learned at a, you know, sitting at a dinette counter with them. Right. It was just like. But now I had a reference point for each one of them. And I was like, I can remember how hard it was when we did Air Expert. Right. And I'm chairman of the board at Air Expert. Right. Like that's a that's one of the few things I carried over him really passionate about it seeing that happen it's a buffalo company you know um or man i was so stupid when i didn't put more money in on tackle tackle was like the first unicorn i bet on at a seed round and i just didn't have a lot of capital at that time and instead of being like no i'm going to standardize things to have enough left i didn't get to put as much in and it's been an awesome return but it was it's on a smaller multiple so i think 
when you start to look and your bank account goes from having millions in it to hundreds of thousands to maybe it points, you know, tens of thousands or ones of thousands, you know, and I ran, I run it down to the edge every time. And then it comes back. It's like a well. You just pray to God and wait that the water comes back, right? But you start to realize, like, okay, I got to be thoughtful in this. The same way, that I'm, like, I'm not surprised that now all of a sudden it's hotter out and we just so happen to have enough technology to know global warming's happening. If this had happened 200 years ago, they're like, why is it so damn hot? I don't know. Maybe it's something we're doing. And then you ask the question. So it was like, why do I have less money in my account? Oh, I've doing, been doing a bunch of investing. Okay, well, let me now think about that, right? But but mm-hmm. I take a very seasonal approach to what I do in the sense that it's episodic. I'm, you know, I'm heavy investor and then I'm heavy reflector, heavy refl- heavy investor, heavy reflector. And maybe it'll be a detriment because you know my my investments are like you know stepwise bolus. It's just like boom, boom, boom. I'm doing this thing with my finger where it looks like you know, nothing and then a big hill and then nothing. But, um, you know, I think that's when it became real. And I think it really became real when I got, it wasn't even the first company, a couple companies dying. It was the first couple companies really growing. And I was like, crap. Okay. Now I got data, right? I mean, like how many people have 150 data points of something theoretically stupid they did, you know, that's written down in legal document and be like, why did I do that stupid thing? Why did I do that stupid thing? Why did this stupid thing work? Why did that stupid thing not work? And you start to learn and you learn about yourself. And I'd say that mixed with a little bit of therapy and spending more time up in the Adirondacks and watching my kid grow up and falling in love and realizing life goes quick. And all of a sudden you, you're like, shit, I don't want to go fast anymore. They used to call me speedy, right? I don't think anybody's as fast as me, right? Um, <laughs> And I, I, I offer to challenge anybody on that. I can build a financial model faster than anybody else you've ever met. But um, and I think think fast. I'm not the smartest guy, but I think fast. But, you know, I was like, I'm done being fast. I want to build something durational. And so I got to go slower and I got to get help and I got to put a process around this. I got to stop being stupid. Hmm. Problem is, I won't stop being stupid because venture is kind of a stupid thing. Right. <laughs> you got an idea and all of a sudden it's worth five million bucks. That sounds stupid. If I said it to my son, he'd be like, Dad, that's stupid. I'd be like, yeah, it is. And that's what I do for work. People have ideas and I tell them it's worth two and three and four and five million bucks and I give them money on that. And I was like, holy cow, I should be a professional idea maker. But, you know, it's okay. You know, I, I, the world needs it and it has proven lucrative and profitable enough for myself and the people around me that I continue to be lucky and blessed every day to play this game. And I think... That's why I run it in a process now through a fund. In in the intentionality of 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 slowness and and reflection, have you you know changed your mind about any other kind of long held beliefs that that you've had more recently? Yeah, some are positive. Like, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a conservationist. The way you probably think of Teddy Roosevelt being a conservationist, right? Like, I love trees. And I don't mind shooting a boar if it's between them. And I think the world is going to make it. I don't know if mankind's going to make it. Right? I always thought everything would. I also always thought everybody was deep down good. And I haven't lost that belief, but it has been challenged more as I start to reflect back on things and stop being ignorant. I used to love cars, and this had nothing to do with ACV. 
And I see how like we fall in love with like big prize things and in some ways it's materialistic and you really don't need them. Like my favorite days are days where I don't get behind the steering wheel. And maybe that's because my cars are all jalopies, but um, I'm just saying. Uh, and, and I start to back up and I realize that all the stuff I wanted to do, like it, it no longer, I will say, and I credit my fiance on this. She has helped me slow down and she has said, you know, she has helped me understand it's not about how many meetings you have. You're not in a competition. You're not trying to prove anything to anybody. Like you said, like I did enough that if I die, my obituary will be nice and long and full. Right. I don't feel like I've lived half a life, you know, in Blade Runner. I love the quote, the star that burns twice as bright only burns half as long. Right. And it's like, okay, do I want to burn out? No. So it's now I'm I'm trying to get more reflective. I'm trying to get more proactive. I thought of my, I, for the few years I was a horrible baseball player that I played, I was a catcher, which is funny for such an alpha guy to be a catcher, except you realize you get to yell at everybody and that's the best part of it. But I don't want to be the catcher anymore, right? I don't want to be reactionary. I want to come in. I want to throw my pitches and I want to be thoughtful. And I think, I think when you're proactive, it allows you to be more artful. Not that there's that art in the way you show grace in receiving somebody else's lob of crap, but you know, um, I've decided that life is short and you know, yes, it's more important to listen than talk. And yes, it's more important. There's still life still long enough to be patient but I'm ready to start calling my shots more. And I always thought that I was, I remember saying like, I've always helped other people with their ideas. I wonder if I'll ever do mine. And in some weird way, that's what this fund is because my idea is not to run a company in the medical space or the material science space. My idea is to fundamentally straighten out this crooked relationship between people that sit on opposite sides of a table in an early stage company right? Primarily investors and founders. So that's the line I'm trying to straighten. Mm, that's awesome. Takes a lot that. of hammering, man. <laughs> you know, the traditional closing question that, that I ask folks is uh, for their favorite hidden gem in, in Cleveland. But I think you are actually the first person on the show not classically associated with Cleveland in the way that, that others are building in the ecosystem. So I'd love for one, you know, Give the the plug for Buffalo and you know what what you love about it and and a hidden gem of Buffalo, if you will. And then uh, you know we we did meet here in Cleveland, and so you know your 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 perceptions of of the city and and your own favorite you know takeaways from it. One of my favorite things, you know, whenever people talk about Buffalo, they talk about food and they talk about the wings and they talk about all that they do. And I like to tell people, I think my favorite restaurant in Buffalo doesn't even serve wings. And it's literally (laughs) across the street from the airport. It's called Charlie the butcher and I could eat it literally every single day the rest of my life. (laughs) You know, in, in addition to that, I would say this, like I'm not from Buffalo. I think one of the hidden gems here, as opposed to other cities is I have in my travels never seen a place where people love where they're from so much. And I'm from Rochester. It's an hour away. <laughs> and I would say whatever is in the water that makes the people love the hell out of this place. And if you've been to a Bills game, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but it's because it's literally civic pride on the level of like soccer in Europe. 
And Buffalo hasn't been in the same place for like 700 years, like some of these places in like, you know, Eastern Europe have, right? For some reason, for a place that's got the crappiest amount of snow, and it's only warm enough to go outside without your shoes on for like four months, it has found a way to enchant and keep its own, at least in their hearts, if not physically. Cleveland, I don't know as well, but I will tell you a very small hidden gem. If you go into the Guardian Stadium, there is the Memorial Park. And actually, one of the first guys that committed to us at ACV, who happens to also be my uncle, if he's listening, David Newman, he has a brick there as the number one tribe guy. And it's funny, whenever I go to the stadium, which I try and get to once or twice a year, even if I'm not with him, which he drags, he lives in the Carolinas now, but he comes up and he sees him. He drags us, he drags us to that brick every time and to <laughs> see like how much he still loves the place. It must be a really special place. You know, it makes you feel the same way that it does about people in Buffalo. So super hidden gem that no one here is going to care about. But, you know, just think <laughs> all those people that bought bricks really give one, one hoot about that place. Because we're not Florida and we're not Texas and we're not the Caribbean and we're not Europe. And that's okay. Yes, yes, it is. Well, no, I think, again, back to the, the kindred ethos there, there is this the civic pride in, in the city that I, I, I think is shared in, in both. So that's totally. a perfect place to, to wrap it up here. Jack, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. Thanks, buddy. I really appreciate it. If, if people had anything they wanted uh, to follow up with you about, what would be the best way for them to do so? DM me on LinkedIn and do not make the note you send me look like you're trying to sell me something because <laughs> I get so many of those, you know, and I actually write um, a weekly newsletter about Buffalo called Buffalo Bridge. And if you DM me and you're interested, uh, I'll tell you about it. You can see it on my LinkedIn profile, but that or I'm in the grass lot every home game and you can just look for the guy that probably has his shirt off and is screaming louder than anybody else and that'll be me or i'll be right next to that person because that'll be somebody i envy it'll be one or the other (laughs) awesome well thank you again jack thanks a lot man i appreciate it go bills that's all for this week thank you for listening We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.